Well, good evening, everyone. Thanks, Georgia, for reading the Bible to us. Uh, if you've got a Bible, keep it out. Uh, that's what we're going to be doing, looking at that passage that we've just read uh, over the next little while together. Um, before we do that, though, I just wanted to bring you up to speed uh, with some news with one of our mission partners, uh, Seth and Kate, along with their kids, Josie and Micah. Uh, next week, I'll have some more information, uh, a little statement that I'm going to read out from them. But um, just wanted to bring you up to speed with the fact that they've been through a very rough time uh, little, little, I spoke to them this last week and said that I would let you know so that we could be praying for them. Uh, so uh, there's been a, a fairly significant uh, medical condition in their family, of which uh, it's quite upsetting and uh, there's going to be a lot of care that's going to be needed into the future. Uh, at the same time, Seth's grandmother passed away in the last week and her funeral was on Friday. She loves the Lord Jesus and you know, they're rejoicing in that reality but also incredibly sad to say goodbye to her. Uh, so that, along with some other things, uh, means that uh, they've had a, a fairly rough time. Uh, and I assured them that we would, not only that I would let you know tonight, but that we'd be praying for them uh, as they deal with what they've got to deal with. And uh, next week, as I said, I will let you know more information uh, as they kind of allow that information to, to be um, spoken of uh, much more clearly. Why don't I pray uh, for them and for us as we hear God's word. Our gracious God, we thank you that you are the God of all things, the God who is in all and over all and through all, who works in our lives in all kinds of ways. Father, help us to recognise that in this world we face the realities of a broken world. We pray for Seth and Kate in the, uh, the difficulty of their current circumstances, in the grief that they feel and the pain that they're going through. We thank you that they love you, but mostly we thank you that you love them and that they are in your hands and that they know that and that they are trusting in you. We also pray, Father, for them and the rest of the family that grieve the loss of Seth's grandmother and ask, Lord, that you would comfort them in, the, in their loss, even as we rejoice that she is a follower of yours. And Father, we pray for ourselves right now as well as we take these next few minutes just to reflect on your word together. When there are so many distractions, we pray, Lord God, that you would help us to uh, push those distractions aside right now so that we hear what you say to us in your word, that we let it sink in, that we reflect on it, and that we act on upon it. And we ask, Lord God, you, that you might help us in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and uh, this is the... Uh, if you like, we're not at the end of Corinthians, but end of a section that started back in chapter 8. Uh, and so really important to see where this argument has gone over these last few weeks that we've spent together. Uh, when I was growing up, uh, the values of the culture that I grew up in had many similarities with Christianity. There uh, weren't too many ways in which our Christian behaviour stood out from the prevailing culture around us. I mean, of course, there were some obvious ways in which our Christian behaviour did stand out from the culture around us, but in some senses they were fairly minor compared to the, the things that we face today. So, for example, in, in line with the Bible's teaching, generally Christians didn't swear, um, they didn't get drunk, they didn't gamble, uh, they didn't sleep together before marriage, nor watch uh, sexually explicit movies, things like that. Uh, and I'm not saying that those things are minor things, they're serious, they're sinning against God. But while non-Christians in the culture I grew up in may have indulged in those kind of things, they still generally thought that Christian ways were good ways to live. 
and even many non-Christians would avoid those kind of things. And so there seemed to be a little bit more clarity about what was okay and what wasn't okay in living my Christian life. And there wasn't too much pressure on me from the culture around me. However, as you would well know, that that situation has changed rapidly here in Australia. Uh, Not only has our own culture become increasingly non-Christian, anti-Christian, even hostile to Christian things, but multiculturalism has uh, brought with it many other kinds of non-Christian culture. And so how do I know what's okay in my Christian life? Because the issues that arise for us uh, are issues that arise out of our non-Christian culture. And not all will be straightforward, can I say, and sometimes the things that we have to do as Christians will be personally costly to us. So what principles will help us live lives that are acceptable and pleasing to God? Well, the specific issue that uh, the Apostle Paul has been addressing in the church in Corinth uh, is, as you will know, over the last few weeks we've been talking about it on and off, is the issue of eating food that has been sacrificed to idols. Uh, Now, we finally, as I said before, reached the conclusion of the argument that Paul has been making since right back at the beginning of chapter 8. Some of the church in Corinth know that idols are nothing. They know that they don't exist. Uh, It doesn't matter that meat has come from some kind of idol sacrifice because in the end, meat is meat and it all comes from God and they have no belief in that idol anyway. And so they know, some of these Christians in Corinth know that they're completely free to eat that meat. In fact, they probably take it a little bit further and they say that it's actually their right to eat that meat and they shouldn't have to give up that right just because, because others don't have the same knowledge. But Paul, remember, has been saying that there's something even more important than knowledge and that is love. However... He has also been questioning the validity of their knowledge because not only have uh, some of these Christians been eating meat, sacrificed to idols, rightly so, but they've been doing it in idol temples and apparently as part of those sacrifices themselves. And so they think that they're living out their freedom in Christ, but Paul is saying that some things are always wrong. That's one of the principles here, really. Some things are always wrong. Uh, Look at verse 14 uh, in your Bibles there. He says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Do not participate in idolatry, Paul says. Now, he's just reminded them, you might remember last week in in chapter 10, verses 1 to 12, he reminded them of Israel's failure. The people of Israel were an example of what happens when you get involved in idolatry. Flee from idolatry, Paul says. If it could destroy Israel out in the wilderness, it can do it to us now. Well, how? Look at at verse 15. Let's just pick it up from there. He goes on and he says, I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. 
See, Paul knows that this isn't going to be an easy thing for the Corinthians to hear. So much of the uh, social and political and economic life of the city was caught up in these idle feasts and practices. And so they'd be, uh, there'd be lots of things they'd be missing out on if they didn't take part. And so perhaps that's why he addresses them here as my beloved in verse 14. There's a, there's a tenderness and a care in the words that Paul uses there. And he appeals to them as sensible people to consider carefully what he's telling them. And he gives them two examples in these few verses here. And the first example is he says, you know, when Christians come together in fellowship around Christ to eat together, now possibly he's referring to the Lord's Supper here, uh, that's the first example he gives. What, what is going on there? And then what about when Israel would bring their sacrifices to the temple, uh, do those sacrifices in the temple, and then partake in eating of them afterwards? What is going on there? Now notice um, the critical issue for Paul here is the issue of participation. Now we see it several times. So verse 16, Paul says, The cup we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread we break. Is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Verse 18, he says, Are those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? And then over in verse 20, he's going to say, I do not want you to be participants with demons. See, when we, we gather together like this, um, this evening, for example, it's because of the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are united in him. We are joined together in him. And as we eat and drink together, as we do symbolically, for example, in the Lord's Supper, then we are expressing our unity and our participation together with Christ and as the body of Christ. We are united with Christ and one another. And so the big issue for Paul is what are you participating in when you eat the meat in the temple as part of an idol sacrifice. See what he says in verse 19? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. And food is nothing, it's food. Doesn't matter what it's offered to. However, verse 20, however, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. The demons, Paul says, use idolatry. I mean, idolatry is nothing, it's a lie, but the father of lies is the devil. That's the way that the Bible describes Satan. The power of the devil, of demons, is their lies. Their aim is to deceive, to lead astray. And Satan's great aim is to get the world to rebel against the God of heaven and earth. And so he tells you lies. God is not good. Perhaps he's not even there. Or he won't forgive you. you. You're not good enough to be forgiven. Or there are other gods who are more powerful. And as people believe those lies, so they become more and more under his power. And so when you eat in the idol's temple, you're participating in demon worship. As Christians, you cannot do that, says Paul. See verse 21? You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? 
Now, those questions obviously presume the answer is no. How ridiculous then to provoke God. Now, if you've kind of come to Christianity out of a a different religious background where that included the worship or sacrifice to idols or the belief in some other kind of godlike power, then you need to see it for what it is. The lies of demons to deceive. Flee from idolatry, Paul says, because Paul knows how dangerous it is. And Israel tried to have God and idolatry, and they perished in the wilderness. See, there are some things, Paul says, that are always wrong. However, that's not all that Paul has to say here, and so he returns to this issue of freedom, and particularly to the use of your freedom as a Christian person. And look what he says at verse 23. He says, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbour. Now, Paul quotes back to them uh, what seems to be their own little mantra. All things are lawful, all things are lawful, is what they seem to be saying. And yes, at one level, Paul agrees with them. They are free to eat meat sacrificed to idols. It's just meat. It's absolutely wrong, though, to participate in the worship of idols in any way. But yes, I can eat. It is lawful. However, he goes on to say, what I might be free to do may not always be helpful to others. In other words, some things may be okay, but we shouldn't always do them. Now, to say that I am free doesn't mean that I can just do whatever I like. Rather, true freedom is found in the service of others, being able to say, I don't have to do whatever I like. And look at what Paul says over in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. He says, Therefore you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another for the whole law is fulfilled in one word you shall love your neighbor as yourself see paul has already told us uh, back in chapter 8 that knowledge doesn't build up it puffs up it's love that builds up because love is concerned for the other person not just for yourself and so Paul has a mantra of his own here that every, every Christian should commit to memory. See what he says in verse 24? Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbour. That would be a great one to tuck away as a memory verse. It might be lawful to eat anything, but how will my eating, how will my actions help others? Well, what about you guys? How are you seeking the good of others? How have you maybe changed your plans in the last week uh, in either little ways or even big ways so as to do what is best for others? I, I know someone from our church who, through this COVID time, refuses to go to a supermarket so that they can keep themselves uncontaminated so they can come to church for the sake of others. That's seeking the good of others, isn't it? The local church is a great place to serve others. How are you doing that? See, we need to be aware of the dangers of of thinking that we're consumers 
in the life of our church. Instead, we actually need to work hard to give ourselves to help and love others. However, it is right, can I say, it is right, and Paul wants them to recognise this, it's right to recognise the freedom that you do have. He's not wanting to crush their freedoms here. Uh, Look at what he says in verse 25. He says, eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If you're not participating in idolatry, then you're completely free to eat the meat, no matter what so-called God it has been sacrificed to. The whole earth belongs to God and everything in it. It's actually why we say grace or we pray before a meal, because we are acknowledging and giving thanks that the food we eat is provided by the hand of God. And so there is freedom to eat whatever you want, although I'm told it's possible to overdo the KFC. Now, the other issue that Paul raises here, though, is eating with a non-believer. And again, while you're free to eat whatever you wish, uh, what is your unbelieving friend? So what if your unbelieving friend has a conscience issue with it? Well, if they have a problem with it, Paul says, don't eat it. Not for the sake of your conscience, which is free to eat, because you know that meat is meat, but don't eat it for the sake of their conscience. I mean, you're clearly free to eat but you can choose not to eat for the sake of their conscience. See, see how this great concern of, of Paul's is the great concern we are to have for people's salvation. And our concern for people's salvation, see how it affects everything that we do. God loves my non-Christian friend. Jesus loves and died for my non-Christian friend. Everything I do must show that I love and am concerned for the salvation of my non-Christian friend. If they tell you where the meat's from and you go ahead and eat, it'll look like you don't care about the idol thing and you may end up making the gospel unclear to that person. But your concern for them will lead you to make a sacrifice for their sake. Now, I think that uh, verses 29 to 30, if you're looking on there, Uh, which almost looks like Paul is contradicting what he's just said, okay? It sounds like he's doing that, but I actually think it's an indicator that he's facing further opposition from within the church for the flexible way in which he handles this particular situation. That is, he's kind of copying it on both sides, those who think he shouldn't eat, those who think he should. And I think Paul is just saying that his conscience is free on this issue and he shouldn't have to change his conscience. He's free to eat, when it won't harm someone else. But he will change, not his conscience, but he will change his behaviour for the good of another if it will help make the gospel clear. Now, I imagine that we'll rarely come up against this food issue today, although we may, and perhaps this is going to be something that we will deal with more and more in the future. But Paul is clearly here more concerned about the principle than the specific issue. Because he actually goes on to summarise what this whole section from chapters 8 through to chapter 11, verse 1, is all about. Uh, Look at verse 31 there. He says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offence to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. You see, Paul is not just concerned about food or idols. He's concerned for everything. Whatever you do, 
do it all for God. Another great verse for you to memorize. Whatever you do, the clothes that you wear, the car you buy, the way you drive it, the job you do, the way you use your words, the money you spend, the use of so, your use of social media, the things you watch, the entertainment you pursue, all you do, do all for the glory of God. How do you enjoy sport to the glory of God, for example, or maybe dancing? The glory of youth, can I say, is your strength. Uh, it's great to feel strong, a long time since I've felt that, whereas the glory of the old person is their grey hair, much more my thing. Um, if, if, of course, you've got any hair, Kurt Peters. Um, <laughs> where there's an opportunity, you've got to take it. <laughs> I think the grey hair thing is the wisdom thing, right? Uh, but if you're someone who enjoys sport, uh, if you're someone who's good at sport, to praise God for what we can do is great. It's glorious to sense your strength and ability as you play your particular sport. Uh, but of course, you should also play within the rules. And you should play with care for others, both those on your team and on the other team. There are ways to play, ways to compete that are God-glorifying. Just as there are ways to drive and shop and wear and speak and work and relax that are God-glorifying. Christians need to remember that. And notice that part of the way in which we give glory to God is by being inoffensive. Give no offence to anyone, Paul says in verse 32. Now, what does that mean for Paul? Well, look at verse 33. He says, Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. And Paul is just about to say in chapter 11, verse 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Now, that's a key phrase of this whole letter, can I say. The Corinthians weren't too keen on Paul's lifestyle. He seemed to sacrifice too much. He seemed to have not enough power. He seemed not to be as glorious as he should be as a follower of Jesus, not as free as he should have been. But Paul's lifestyle was an imitation of the Lord Jesus. He lived sacrificially in service of others like Jesus did. Paul seeks to please people, but, but not as a people pleaser, I mean, we use the term people pleaser for someone who's in it for themselves. They use flattery to manipulate people for their own advantage. But Paul is seeking, notice, the advantage of others, not his own. That is, where to be people pleasers for the good of others. And what is that good? Well, verse 33, he says, that they may be saved. Now, here is the great good. Here is the best good for every single person we know. Paul isn't trying to please people so that they will think well of him, but so that he might save some. He gives up his own interests, his own appetites, his own wants and desires and rights for the sake of others, so that they will be in a relationship with someone who will share the Saviour with them. You never know who you'll have an opportunity to speak to. So don't ruin the opportunity by living in such a way that they won't listen to you. 
I never knew uh, that the night that I refused a work colleague's urging to join him in a strip club so as to honour Jesus would be the night that he decided to become a Christian. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ, Paul says. Here's the crunch. See, Paul is doing what Jesus did. If you want to live a Christ-centred, a cross-shaped life, those terms that we often use, which is supposed to be the genuine life of every Christian person, then look at what Paul did. He is the model of what Jesus did and expected from his followers. Because Jesus laid down his life for the salvation of others, for the salvation of all humanity. Jesus lived and died for the glory of God and the salvation of humankind. He lived and died for you and for your salvation. And he wants you to follow him like Paul did. Are you willing to put your life into the hands of the one who loved you so much? If you're not going to lay down your life for other people's salvation, then you're not like Christ at all. In his next letter to the church in Corinth, uh, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is going to say that now, today, today is the day of salvation. Now is the time of God's favour when he is offering forgiveness of sins and salvation to the world. Today is that day. Through the loving witness of his people, through the church, will you do everything you do to the glory of God? And live every day for the good of others, that they might be saved. Challenging, isn't it? Let's pray together. Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have loved us in a way that no one else could ever love us. You've given your life that we might be forgiven for our sins, that the judgment that we deserve might be taken from us, that we might have life for all eternity in relationship with you and your people. Father, please forgive us for the times that we don't trust you. Forgive us for the times when we don't love others. Forgive us for the times that we are so self-centred that we are not even aware of the needs of those around us. Forgive us, Lord, for the times that we live in such a way that we dishonour your name rather than bring it glory. We thank you, Lord God, that in Jesus Christ we have that forgiveness as we put our faith and trust in him because he died for us. And Father, we do pray that you would make us like Jesus. Thank you for the model that Paul is for us of someone who is other person-centred, who is willing to give up his rights, his freedoms, for the good of others. Help us to be like that. Help us to be like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.